It is good to be in L.A. So you can get your face in the camera. You know, I figured if I was going to see something 20 or 25 times, I ought to know more about it. You're the best son money can buy. It's a monkey. Well, sure it's a monkey. But aside from that, it's a vivid, wonderful film. Entertainment is part of what makes us exceptional. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Hollywood. Without Derek Zoolander, male modeling wouldn't be what it is today. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that like people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. Welcome to the first episode of Watching Mates. I'm this week's host, Lars Emerson, and I am joined by the one, the only, Mike Levito. Hello, hello. You may know us both from our last podcast project, Running Mates, which aired in 2020 and dove into vice presidential picks. Or you may know us for our website and projects on thepostwriter.com. It's uh, it's good to be back on the air with you, Mike. It's It's been a few months. It has. I, I live in a whole other place now. We both yeah, do. You, you and me both. You know, people were like, do you and Mike still talk? And I'm like, yeah, like every day. <laughs> <laughs> do people actually ask you that? I, I have been asked that. <laughs> uh, well, here's your proof. Anyway, as I was saying, this is the first episode of our new podcast in which we explore trends in film and cinema under each post-war president. As we progress from episode to episode, Truman to Eisenhower, Eisenhower to Kennedy, and so on, Mike and I are each going to choose a film from that president's era to capture the zeitgeist of their administration on the silver screen. In our first episode, we're talking Harry Truman. Truman, a Democrat from Missouri, was the 33rd president of the United States. He came into office with President Franklin Roosevelt's death in 1945, towards the end of World War II. He, of course, dropped two atomic bombs on Japan and presided over the conclusion of hostilities in the war. As our first post-war president, he had to pivot the United States and its allies against their former ally, the Soviet Union, in opposition to communism. The Truman Doctrine was to oppose communist aggression everywhere, which moved towards containment, providing aid for Europe via the Marshall Plan, supporting the Berlin Airlift, and joining other non-communist nations in NATO. Uh, And then, of course, he hopped into the Korean War in an attempt to stop the communist North Korea from taking control of non-communist South Korea. Truman did win re-election in 1948, famously defying the odds against Republican Thomas Dewey, though by the election of 1952, despite still being eligible to run, he was relatively unpopular and declined to run again. He did run some primaries, though, before that. Yeah, but kind of like Johnson, right? It's like he just kind of was like, oh, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Primaries were different back then, too. Yeah. I, I think... Is it fair to say that history has been generally favorable about Truman? I think it wasn't in his immediate presidency, but like 50 years later, I think it has been. Yeah, there was a podcast called Presidential, which was done in the lead up to the 2016 election. And it's just there's it's the Washington Post and they do an episode on every president. And the way they open the Harry S. Truman is they're interviewing someone and he's telling the story of when he was a kid and it was a 1948 election. He lived in like a really Republican section of Illinois. And the morning after the election, he, he woke up kind of excited and he went downstairs to ask the like, who, who in the election is that? It was like kind of like shaving and was just dismissive. I'm like, oh, it was Truman. <laughs> and then he was saying a few years later after Watergate, he and his dad were talking about politics. His dad went, you know, it's a real shame Harry isn't around anymore. So I feel like that's sort of like, a, yeah, he was not well liked at the time. But now I think that he's generally regarded as like a better president. You know, he desegregated the military. He did a lot of important well, things. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, was he, like, pretty corrupt? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Was he, like, the only person to ever drop nuclear bombs on another country? Yes. 
But yeah, like you said, desegregating the military. I mean, he basically like presided over the creation of the post-war liberal world order, right? Yeah. And like made sure the United States was like a big part of that. And without him, you may have lost some significant like New Deal achievements, like basic living standards, minimum wage, all that stuff we're still talking about these days. <laughs> but still. So there's your brief overview in case you needed a refresher on who Truman was and what he's famous for. So I guess before we dive in, let's tell our listeners kind of the ground rules. You, you want to tell us, Mike? Yeah. So did you forget already? <laughs> Just giving you a chance to talk. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. So, yes, the ground rules are. So as Lars said, we're picking a film that we think sort of captures the zeitgeist. I, I think it's funny. We never define is it the zeitgeist of the president, is the personality of the president, the achievements of the president. But I think we have a general sort of like indescribable idea of what it actually means. Right. You get it. Like. You know, what movie would you use to explain the Truman era to people? That's what we're picking. As far as the sort of timeline goes, so obviously the years when this president served are fair game, right? So in Truman's case, for instance, that would be, it's 1945 to 1953. Yes. But we are also allowing a year prior and a year after their <laughs> reign, right? 53 and like 40, like 44 would certainly be fair. And then I guess 54 is too, but that doesn't sound F- right 53 is. <laughs> 53, because yeah. your term ends in January. That's so. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that way, not in Truman's case, of course, but we can capture, you know, kind of like the election. It's like, right. you probably want to talk about movies that came out in 2016 if you're going to talk about Donald Trump, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. Or you might want to. Uh, it's almost as if the last year of his presidency didn't actually have a lot of movies come out. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's the idea, and this is our first episode, and we kind of had to reach a little ways back. Um, so what film did you impose on us, Michael? Impose? I thought it was a delight. The Third Man, directed by Carol Reed, written by Graham Greene, starring Joseph Cotton, Volley, Orson Welles, and Trevor Howard. The Third Man is a story of a guy named Holly Martins. And he gets an invitation from his friend to come to post-war Vienna, like literally divided into British, American, French, and Soviet sectors, Vienna. Um, it was some like ill-defined business venture. He arrives in Vienna and finds out that his friend is dead and that he was hit by a car in the street in front of his apartment building and was dragged to the side of the road by three different men. He knows who the one guy is, he knows who the second guy is, but he has to find who the mysterious third man is who was there. Police are after this guy, his friend, Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles, because he's involved in like an illegal penicillin selling scheme. He's basically stealing penicillin meant for hospitals. It's like a 1950s it. thing to do. It is, yes, yes. And this is, of course, like killing people. Yeah. Should I spoil sort of the ending, kind of? (laughs) Kind of, This movie's been out for like, you know, 70 years. Exactly. So basically it turns out that that Harry Lyme is not dead, and he was, in fact, the third man. He's still alive, just on the run from the law. And so it goes from this thing where basically this guy goes from trying to find him, prove that he's alive, and eventually gets enlisted, essentially, by the international police to help bring him to justice. Do we want to talk about first what we thought of this movie or how we think it connects to Harry Truman? I think let's talk about what we thought of it. I'm going to, I know I'm preaching to the choir on this one, but I had never seen it before. Orson Welles is really good in this. He's amazing. So I said on Letterboxd, there are three actors I've seen in movies where I'm like, oh, fuck, this guy is like way better than everyone else. It's, It's Orson Welles in this, Robert De Niro in Mean Streets, and then Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire. But yeah, Orson Welles is not in it for that long, but he is like amazing when he is. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, it's it's 
I don't think you find a lot of people. This is like a classic movie. It's a pretty mm-hmm. like famous classic. Like it's not Orson Welles is probably more famous for Citizen Kane, right? But there's not a lot of like negative stuff I have to say about it. What What did you think of the Zither score? It's all like do 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 do. Oh yes. Sorry. Yeah. So the score is not my favorite. So it, 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 when I first saw it, it like really annoyed me. <laughs> yeah, it does not fit. I get how if you're a producer in like the 1940s and you're making a movie that you want to include some like light elements. It's like it's not like the movies these days where it's like, oh, my God, Leonardo DiCaprio is like trapped in the woods. It's, all the music is dark. You don't get horns, right? You get like deep strings. Mm. But like, I don't know, this movie's not like particularly bright and, and funny. Yeah. It's not like I watched The Great Dictator last night. It's not like that. <laughs> this isn't a comedy by any means. In fact, it's pretty dark. Like children are dying because this dude's taking their penicillin. Yeah. But there are jokes. Like <laughs> there are jokes. No, but like it's like the whole um, you know, there's like that one like British sol- soldier slash cop, and he's like, oh, I really loved your book, The Oklahoma Kid. I hope you get to go to Texas someday. Where <laughs> it's like. Yeah, there's that. There's like uh, the whole scene where it's like he has to give the lecture on on the the contemporary novel. Yeah. So why why did you choose this film for Truman? So it's funny because as I was reading more about it after I watched it again, this is like the second time I've seen it. I was like, oh, this is actually like a British movie, which makes it funny that I picked <laughs> it for this. So the reason why is because I think that it really encapsulates sort of like the way that America must have viewed itself after the war, right? The main character, Holly, is like one of only two Americans in this movie. It's him and then Orson Welles' character. And, you know, he is thrust into a sort of like international conflict in foreign land. He has to balance the interests of like multiple people in it. And he has to basically clean up the mess of a bunch of like foreigners in a foreign land. So I chose. And I have like a whole bunch of things like written out. And, And he's sort of like reluctant in doing it too, right? It's like. He's the only one who can actually do it, who can actually bring a sense of order and justice to this bombed out wasteland that is Vienna. It's like, right. you know, and it, it like literally like he gets there and like a British operative or whatever is like, oh, like he enlists him to like give a lecture to they're like basically reprogramming the Austrian populace because he's so he's supposed to be like a mystery writer. And he like enlists him to to give a lecture on like the contemporary novel. Right. Like he's being drafted essentially by the European powers to help turn the minds of people towards democracy and towards capitalism. And he's very, like, indifferent to it at first, right? Like, he really doesn't want to get involved. It's really his self-interest that keeps him in Vienna for the longest time. He goes there to make money. He stays there because he thinks that the Europeans are framing his friend for this horrible crime. And then that indifference is sort of, like, reversed when he sees images of tragedy, when he sees the the children who are who have been, like, scarred, essentially by the the phony penicillin and yeah I, I just i just think it's a really interesting look at like i said an, an american's place in the world and, and just like even the way he interacts with anna who's the female lead played by this one one named person named volley who is harry lime's girlfriend she's living in the british sector of the city but she's actually czech and for whatever reason that means she'll be like deported to either the soviet sector or the czech or czechoslovakia if people find out she's not actually austrian and, like, the the Brits basically, but they trade her phony passport to the Soviets for some reason. Oh, be, maybe because it's Harry Lime living in the Soviet sector? I don't know. It's for some reason. But they trade this information. Right. He's, like, hiding there because it's the one place they can't go. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, they trade this information to them. 
And like the one thing that Joseph Kahn's character wants in repayment for turning on his friend is making sure that she gets free. Pa- she, I think they're sending her to France or something. Basically, she gets out of Austria and yeah. away from the Soviets. I think there's almost a sense of like, well, look, like the Europeans started this mess and it was the British appeasing Hitler that helped sort of prolong it. And the Americans are not going to take that that stance anymore. Right. We are going to drive a hard bargain, a hard line. This is going to become a free place and we're going to do everything we can to help these people. And uh, yeah. And like, you know, just like the the like little international police squads are just like a great little like metaphor for like the trying to balance the interests of basically a United Nations, if you will. Yeah, I, I also think that they I like wrote down a, a, a quote from the movie here kind of on that same line with the like international police squads is the world war has ended. Right. The world is supposed to be at peace. And yet you have these policemen and towards the end of the movie, they literally like shout out um, if you see him shoot, mm-hmm. which, of course, is not something you're supposed to do if you're a policeman. So there's still very much this like military mentality in this kind of occupied international city. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I get the same kind of obvious read as you. It's kind of like the foibles of thoughtless internationalism. Mm-hmm. Martins kind of jumps into this international world and realizes that it's just a lot more complex than he expected, which is, you know, probably a, you know, same. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. To go to the like the famous moment on the Ferris wheel between Martins and Lime, Lime is like I, I think that's like the scene that kind of captures it most right it's it's kind of this like realism about the world versus an idealism and i think lime is obviously the realist you kind of have this new era of trade-offs it's like we were all willing to let bygones be bygones when it was the nazis but now we have you know a former ally and all these other competing allies that we have to deal with and sometimes diplomacy is messy but we've decided to be involved in it lime kind of goes into this dialogue about like what war and struggle produce it kind of becomes an argument for the military industrial complex <laughs> it does yeah um yeah. and i i thought that was like oh yeah this is like a movie about like america and truman sure <laughs> yeah yeah the other thing i wanted to bring up about this movie which is uh, related is i was reading roger ebert's review of this movie and this is back from the 90s but he kind of makes a, a contrast with um casablanca right it's like he he sort of describes it he says like the third man is the exhausted aftermath of casablanca and it's like they're both basically about american exiles kind of in this international black market world but like casablanca is a a hope of like victory but the third man is more about paranoia and distrust betrayal boom I, i i think you could just sum it up there i think you could say like casablanca is a movie about fdr the third man is a movie about truman and the worlds that they each occupied. Things changed after the war, and The Third Man is like a great way to show that. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, too, that Casablanca was made by an American, and The Third Man was made by a Brit, where it's just like, you know, the Americans at their remove could sort of like make a somewhat romantic view of what was going on right. in the world, whereas like the Brits who were like right across the ocean, or the sea, were like, no, we can't. The pond. I, the pond. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And what was the yeah, like what 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 I think is interesting, and aside from it just being what I think is like a great movie, and the reason I think it makes it worth watching is that like you realize that like Vienna and Berlin were like the Iraq of its time. You know, we assume it's like oh, the Allies went in, they won the war, they ended up building a wall, the Cold War happened, but there was mm. this basically like 
These were absolutely, like, devastated cities and countries. And you still had people living there. And it's like, what do you do when you've completely destroyed their military and overthrown their governments? It's like, how, what do you do to a country after that? I think that's just fascinating to think about, as that they used to be, that was Europe post-World War II. It's like what we see a lot of places in, like, the Middle East. And, you know, I think you can just apply that not just to, like, those individual countries and cities, but also just to, like, the world order. Like, you know... Just like even like a pretty broad overview of like military history, like you realize that the World War World War Two was like a culmination of all these clashes of European powers. Like there had just been like you know European conflicts forever and ever and ever, and World War Two was like the biggest and the worst. It was kind of the it was really like the last, you know, unless you count the Cold War. <laughs> um, Knock on wood on that one. Yeah, right? and and it's just you know th- this idea of people were just like this is clearly not working. We gotta do something, but everybody. Because they just fought an incredibly deadly war. We're also very, like, drunk and depressed about it, so. But also maybe not, I mean, to go full lime here, maybe not knock on wood. Maybe that yeah. war needed to happen for humanity yes, yes. to get to where it is. I mean, I, yes. I think that is, like, probably mostly true. I mean, like, nuclear energy, microwaves. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of view lime as, like, basically, like, the id of, like, American capitalism. So, like, what we keep referring to is he has this whole monologue where he's talking about you know, how he wants to cut Martins into his little, like, black market business. And I think it begins when they're at the top of the Ferris wheel, it's like, look at all these people, don't they look like ants? Like, would you care if one of them died? But he ends up saying, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, they had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. They just yeah. be like, you know, conflict and war is a great driver of unfortunately it's a great driver of progress and yeah I, it's easy to say if you're still alive exactly yeah. yeah 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 you're right it is just like a very it is an argument for the military industrial complex yeah much to our next president chagrin yes yes <laughs> spoilers they don't know who's president after truman yet mike <laughs> they don't cool anything else on the third man i don't think so i, I think that uh yeah and no, i think that's pretty much it all right. So the film I chose is called The Hitchhiker. It's a 1953 American film noir. It's directed by Ida Lupino, who is actually the first woman to direct a film noir. I know. I was very surprised to find out. Right. Yeah. Um, I was surprised that it was this early. <laughs> yeah. It stars Edmund O'Brien, Frank Lovejoy, and William Tallman. I didn't know who they are, so I don't expect you to. This is, like, I, I, I was reading about them afterwards. I was like, oh, this is, like, the one thing they all did. Like, right, right. They, they did not, not a lot of these guys got a lot of work after those. Edmund O'Brien actually did win an Academy Award, but the other two guys, not so much. Yeah. To sum it up, these two friends, they're taking a fishing trip, and they pick up a mysterious hitchhiker who, it turns out, as we see in the opening scene of the film, has killed before... And he intends to kill again. (laughs) And I like, I had never seen this, so I was doing kind of a lot of research on it. And I just found so many great taglines for this movie. Um, (laughs) There's like one, it's like, when was the last time you invited death into your car? (laughs) And there's like, who will be his next victim? You. And it's kind of based on real events. Um, It's inspired by the crimes of uh, Billy Cook, who was like a hitchhiking murderer. (laughs) So, yeah, that's uh, that's The Hitchhiker. I had never seen it or heard of it, but that's what I went with. I guess we should say what we thought about it. Yeah, did you like it? 
I would describe it as lean and mean. It, it's a very simple movie. It's um, short. It's like an hour long. <laughs> it, it is 71 minutes long. But like it's pretty, you know, it, I could see this being done like almost like a no country for old men style type thing. Like I could yes. see this being like very sort of like raw and brutal in like a modern context. Yeah, it, it's pretty good. It's very unique in that way, actually. Yeah. It's a film noir that takes place basically entirely outside in the American and Mexican West. Yes, yes. Which is not uh, normal. <laughs> Usually yeah. expect windows and dark shadows and like rooms. I don't know. Scuro. Yeah. Uh, did did you also think that the two non hitchhikers looked kind of like Nixon? <laughs> I did not. Because <laughs> that's all I could think about as I was watching it. But yeah, it's good. I don't know that I have like a whole much to say. It's um one thing I did think was funny was that there are like scenes where people are speaking Spanish and there are absolutely no subtitles. <laughs> they have absolutely no idea what's going on. I mean, you, they're asking, you know, have you seen these people? And they're essentially saying no. But I don't right, know. and that becomes part of the plot, right? Is one of the protagonists, one of the friends, can speak Spanish. And so mm-hmm. the hitchhiking murderer, you know, needs him to speak Spanish for him, but he, like, doesn't like it when he does because he can't tell yeah. if the guy's asking for help. Yes. There's, like, a lot of weird, like, wrinkles in this movie. Mm-hmm. The most notable is because they're together for, for, like, days. I mean, he's, like, kind of, like, storming them across the West on this, like, murder quest. So you'd have to sleep at some point, right? But it turns out <laughs> the hitchhiker sleeps with one eye open because of, like, a medical thing. So yeah, his, they... his, 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 like, eyelid is dead or something. Right. So they can never actually tell if he's sleeping or not, which is some, like, aggressive writing to, to work that. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I didn't think I had a point, but my handwriting is very bad. But I wrote, I have Sauron in my notes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you would think someone's eye would eventually, like, dry out and die if they couldn't blink. I don't know how it works. <laughs> no, me, uh, me neither. Um, that's, like, the oddest technicality in this film that yeah. they kind of put in there so that the plot would work, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why did I tr- choose this film for Truman? Good question. I, I think in hindsight, I've appreciated this choice more and more, especially since you chose The Third Man, is I actually think The Third Man is a good movie about, like, the international state of the world, whereas I think The Hitchhiker is a good movie about, like, the domestic state of the world under Truman. I'm going to try not to, like, stretch this too much, <laughs> but, okay, do I think that Ida Lupino made a movie about Truman? No. <laughs> but this film only could have happened, dare I say, under him, because... There's like Americans in cars, man. It's like Mm -hmm. the new, you know, post-war. They got their new freedom. They're back from the war. They've got their automobiles and they're driving around. But then you have to explore the dark side of that freedom. Is it turns out there is no big bad Nazi anymore. The real danger, the real enemy is within. Just like communism, just like the erosion of our civil liberties. Who is the enemy now? You can't trust your fellow American. I'm going to start there. It's funny because I I did look at it from more of like a foreign policy lens. That's good too. <laughs> the the villain in this movie, his name's Myers. It's like you know very much like he's he's like very like clearly evil. Like he's got the messed up eye. He wears a, like a leather jacket all the time. He's um, like the Disney version of evil. Is you're ugly and you wear all yeah. black, right? <laughs> he, he hates Mexican people and. But he gives it, I don't remember exactly, but he gives this monologue where he's basically like you know he, he's kind of like a survival of the fittest type. And he's basically like, you know, like he, he basically the reason he's able to coerce these people into doing into driving him across the desert is because he's got a gun trained on him. And it reminded me 
of this line from Mao Zedong, which is which he says, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. And I kind of viewed it in those terms where it's like I viewed him as basically the specter of communism forcing America into action on the foreign policy stage. Right. He is coercing them into acting in not just Europe, but also in 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 this in, in Mexico and South America and, and kind of taking them along for a ride and, and freaking them out in the process. And but the arguments are like without without the gun, he's nothing. You know, he can be easily neutralized. Um, there's still a way forward. Yeah, and also there's a sense, like, towards the end when, like, the police are on him, he changes clothes with one of the drivers. And his whole thing is, like, you know, if I look like you, they're not going to shoot me. They're going to shoot you instead. And I think there's also, like, a sort, there's sort of, like, a McCarthyist, like, well, you know, the communists, they all look like you and me. You know, yeah. they're somewhere in our small towns. And they're just waiting to pop out of hiding and take over the country. I mean, we're about to embark on this history in America where we're all terrified of our neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. I, the only, I mean, the the thing I think like rivals it is like the post 9-11 version of America is like suddenly we're looking over our shoulder at everyone around us, even though they're just normal Americans like we are. It's just, I, I think it's like a relatively new mindset for the 20th century American. I guess what, what I, I don't really have an answer for this yet, but... I think this is a very unique film, right? We've discussed it. It's kind of a film noir, kind of at the er- end of the era of noirs. It's a Western film noir, which Westerns are, of course, like a very popular genre at this time in the 50s. Um, why make this particular kind of film right now in 1953? No, but I, I, th- I think there is some truth to the idea of, like you said, there's, there's more freedom. And with freedom comes, you know, essentially more danger. Yeah, I don't know if I have much more to add outside no, of that. I, that was like my exact thought too. And, and there is like you know there is a there is like a cheap thrill aspect of it too, right? It's like you go to the drive-in to watch this movie, and then you drive back home in your small town through your poorly lit country <laughs> roads. And who knows? There could be a guy. Maybe you see a hitchhiker on the way, and you think, "Is this guy gonna kill me?" Also, I I do. <laughs> this is very random. Do you think like the rate of like picking up hitchhikers was higher then than it is now? You think it was like a more common thing? I would assume uh, it has to be, right? Because not everyone has cars, and I mean they like pick people up so nonchalantly, right? Yeah. Also, like there was then all those like hitchhiker murders in the seventies with that mm-hmm. serial killer in California, sixties or seventies. Um, yes, I would assume so. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all I have. I have a. <laughs> I have a semi-ingest take on this movie. Are you ready for it? Okay. Okay. This movie is about men being marched and ordered around as hostages by a bad guy with little motivation. Tell me this isn't about Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> hey Yeah, there we go. That's all I had. That's all that's, I had on that. That'll really kill on Carson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all I've got. That's all I've got on The Hitchhiker. Yeah, there's a hyphen in between Hitch and Hiker, which is annoying because that's not how you spell it. Um, I, I, I'm currently on the Wikipedia page for hitchhiking. It is illegal in 44 of 50 states. And there's also a list of notable hitchhikers in case you're <laughs> interested in that, which includes Hitchbot. Do you remember Hitchbot? Oh, yeah. The one who's ended up dead. In in Philadelphia, of course. Yeah. Um, um, I'm glad we've kept our theme of shitting on Philadelphia through the podcast, Mike. Yeah. Nia worked in some Florida slander, and we'll, we'll have hit our quota. I know. Um, 
I, I guess the, the place to end with this is, I mean, it's a pretty big deal. This is directed by like a female director. Yes. That that's a very like modern thing to have happen, and I guess hey, we're in a new world. The the Golden Globes just occurred, which I know you weren't aware of, but they did. And the big news out of the Golden Globes was that for the first time ever, there were more female directors nominated for the Golden Globe for directing than there were male directors. Wow. Yeah. It's a shame that was in such a like a dead year, but wow. Yeah. Okay. So those are our two movies. Yes. What, what are what are our conclusions about the films in the Truman era? So what I think stands out to me about both these movies, from which we can draw conclusions from, like, you know, an entire nine-year period of film, is that um, <laughs> they, there's there's a sense of displacement in both, right? Mm. Like, this is not a story of someone who, like, no, no one is in their home in this movie, really. There's a sense of displacement of being kind of a stranger in a strange land, of being, in a sense, exposed, being vulnerable. And I think that might reflect how a lot of people felt in the post-war era, at least very immediately afterward, right? Not only was sort of like, you know, America now newly powerful and had to, you know, wasn't able to settle into its little isolationist comfort zone as it had done for essentially a century beforehand. Very, Other than that World War One thing. Yes, and the Spanish-American War and the Mexican War and very complicated country, the United States, basically. But I think that probably spoke to a lot of just like regular people too, right? It's like, you go off to fight, you know, in a war for a year or two, and you come back, and is your job still there? Is your home still there? You know, things have changed. You know, there are women in the workplace. Yeah, a lot of things are different. And, and you know, there's there, I'm sure there's a lot of economic migration going on then, too, right? Like, the West is being built up. Literally, the country just was transformed. You know, like, the changes you would have seen from, like, 1933 to 1953, right? There are entire communities that just did not have electricity, and all of a sudden they have electricity, right? And as Lime says, thanks to war, now they do. <laughs> I mean, it was more of like a New Deal thing. But that came out of strife too, right? Yes. You know, like, planned suburbs are a thing now, right? Yeah. It's, it's one of those things, too. If you ever find yourself on a day where you have, like, nothing to do... You're like, holy crap, like, what do I do with my time now, right? And and I think that that sometimes happens with, like, empowerment, too. It's like, what do I do with my power? What do I do now that this sort of old world I've been living in is completely flipped upside down? Like, that's how I'm going to feel, honestly, knock on wood, in a few months. <laughs> if, like, lockdowns start ending and stuff, I'm not going to know what the hell to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm living in a totally different city now. Like, it's going to be very weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, I... I... I agree with all of that. I also, I think a thing that kind of strikes me about these films as compared to kind of the films, um, especially in the last five, six years, is politics hasn't been nationalized enough for you to kind of easily put these films together, right? Is you kind of have to look at broad themes, which I think we've actually managed to do pretty well here, <laughs> better than I expected, because I pulled this movie kind of out of nowhere. But But it's like, I mean, you think of the movies under like like the Trump administration, every single one of them without saying Trump's name were about what's happening. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I just think politics was less nationalized and less polarized in the 50s and the 40s and would be for a little while here. And I guess like the takeaway there for me was that history has become nationalized, right? Is now mm -hmm. all of America now has this sense of, oh my God, there's like a whole world out there that we now have like commitments to. 
in a way that we never really have, including like World War One. It's like our commitments after World War Two are like a big deal. Mm-hmm. We we have set ourselves up as like a basically a completely different mindset on how we approach our lives in the world. So like history has become nationalized, even if politics has not yet. And I think these films capture that. Yes. Like, you, you couldn't tell in any of these movies if any of the characters are Republicans, Democrats, they voted for Truman, voted for Roosevelt, who knows, right? Yes. In fact, many of them, I mean, like, the characters in The Third Man seem pretty damn apolitical. Right. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. And I guess you don't see, the closer we get to the modern day, I think you'll see that less and less. Probably. Well, that's our first show, everyone, and we hope you enjoyed it. This, this podcast is a little looser than Running Mates, as you can tell, because, I mean, we're talking about movies. And we'll try to keep these episodes coming. We've got, you know, some other projects maybe coming down the wire this year, too. Uh, and in the meantime, I have been Lars Emerson. I'm Mike Levito. We should tell people to go to thepostwriter.com. Okay. Yeah, you can. I mean, first of all, you can like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that your podcasts are found. And of course, you can follow us both on thepostwriter.com. It's where Mike and I do our writings. It's where we publish all our podcasts, uh, especially around elections. We do a ton of stuff. We've started doing these chats, putting a lot of effort in this year, 2021. That's going to be the year. Follow me on Twitter, at MLevito. I'm on Letterboxd as a Maramike. Oh, yeah, and I'm on Letterboxd at Lars Emerson. And we will see you next time when we discuss the films of the Eisenhower era. I like Ike. Me too. That, that was literally our Wi-Fi password in our <laughs> apartment in D.C. It was I like Ike. It was.